Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others, and the planet. Welcome to Episode 74 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Mr. Dan Pink on the show with us today. Dan is the author of seven books, four New York Times bestsellers, and one just released. Today we'll talk about Dan's new book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Let's get into the episode. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Brad, a pleasure. Thanks really for appreciate it, Dan. Dan, what's your backstory? I'm really keen to understand. You know, what led you to the journey of studying human behavior, becoming a best-selling author who's helped so many? Well, thank you for su- suggesting that. Uh, I think it's true for I-, I think it's true for a lot of people in their work lives that it doesn't follow their lives don't follow a predictable linear path when we're when we're kids we tend to think that the way that someone got from point a to point b was in a single line when in fact as adults i think we discover that you get from point a to point q and you get there with lots kinds of curly cues and turnarounds and false starts and and so that's my story too i uh, i started out uh when i was in university i actually majored in in uh, linguistics, which is a very um, kind of systematic, almost mathematical kind of social science. I was really interested in that and really enjoyed working on that. But you know, I went to I went to graduate I went to law school in these states. Law uh, a law degree is a graduate degree, and so I went to law school, you know, because that's what I was supposed to do. And I and I was interested in politics, and I and I did that. Realized I didn't want to practice law. Ended up working in politics, but. Here is the point, I think, if there's a lesson in this shaggy story, it's that from the time I was in university all the way through the time I was studying law as a graduate student to the time that I was even working in politics, I was always writing on the side. I was writing magazine articles and newspaper columns and whatnot. And it finally occurred to me that what I was doing on the side was what I should be doing in the center. Uh, I mean, it took me in my early 30s to, 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 to figure that out. And so... So I started, um, so I left my job. My wife did not leave her job. And we said, let's see if I can do my own writing for a couple of years and see if we can still support ourselves. And that was about over 20 years ago. And so far, you know, it's worked out reasonably well. And, and, I, and in a sense, I returned to that interest that I had in university about, you know, the systematic exploration of human behavior. It's such a key topic, isn't it? I think um, behavior is at the heart of it. But then through that journey, mate, who are some people who inspired you along the way on that, mate, and sort of helped you like you've helped others? Well, there have been a lot of people. I mean, I, you know, the way I, the way I, I feel like I've taken pieces from things that all kinds of people have done. You know, so, so I look at somebody like the late uh, Peter Drucker, and he certainly... You know, when reading his stuff when I was much younger, 
made me say, wow, that's really interesting what he's doing here. And he was he was um, he was a non-specialist, too. He was basically trained as a journalist and and worked that way. So somebody like Peter Drucker, um, you know, the next generation of that was somebody like Tom Peters, who had a very different um, uh, approach to these kinds of things and a very different personality and bring to bear on that. But, you know, I thought what he did, uh, what he has done, continues to do, has been really spectacular. Uh, and, and, you know, and, again, just drawing pieces from different writers and different thinkers, and you just don't know how the pieces all come together. One of the things that I think about as a, as a writer uh, is also in, informed as a, as a reader, which is that, you know, it's important to expose yourself to a lot of different ideas and a lot of different voices. And then through the process of absorbing those, you come up with your own point of view and your own voice and it isn't meant to be just like somebody else or actually contrary to somebody else it's just who you are and and so so for me it's hard to come up with any single person i mean i look at this on my you know so i mean you and i are talking via zoom so your audio listeners won't hear that but here's a book that i have on my desk that i read when i was 10 years old called working which is about uh where a guy named american journalist named studs terkel uh, went around the United States and interviewed people about their jobs. And that's kind of sort of what I did. I mean, the, the right. you know, I'm just on my, like the book that I was reading earlier this morning is this mammoth 900 page biography of Andy Warhol. So yeah, I'm not an artist, but I get, I learn and get inspired by some of the, th the amazing things that Andy Warhol did. So, so forgive that extremely, extremely long winded answer to your simple question, but it's, it's a lot of things. And I think that that's one of the joys of reading and one of the joys of just paying attention to the world is that you process all these different ideas and voices and concepts and through some kind of magical alchemic process, you begin to develop your own point of view. Yeah, I love that, Dan. And I, I really hear in that, that um, conversation, the, you know, this element of constant learning, constant inquisition and exploration yeah and then over that that those years you formed up and then done further research i think that's true for most people I, I there are a lot of people who like that like you're working as a job you're a leader of a of a small uh, division of a large company as you've gone through your career you have learned things you have you, you say oh look at the way that she did that hmm i don't know if i like it that way look at the way he did that okay that's a little bit better Oh, someone in a, in a conversation told me about this idea. Okay, let me process that. And that's, and that's how we become who we are. And it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Highly enjoyable, isn't it? Just the amount yeah. of knowledge out there that you can consume and evolve into your own, your own approach. Dan, what, what led you to start this new exploration path, this research you've been doing in the book you've written on the power of regret? Well, I think it was partly. Um, I think part of it was was where I where I was in life, and again, our point of view, no matter what we do for a living, changes over time. the The way we process the world changes over time. We grow, we evolve, we have new perspectives. So I don't think that I would have written this book in my thirties. Although in my fifties, it felt kind of inevitable because I had. <laughs> You know, I was reckoning with some of my own regrets. Um, I think the, the impetus was that our eldest daughter graduated from university. And I remember being at her 
graduation ceremonies, these endless large ceremonies, and thinking about, my gosh, I feel like I was just in university, and I started thinking about it. It's like, oh, gosh, I wish I would have done that. If only I had done that. And what I found is that when I mentioned what I thought were these you know, these sort of private, vulnerable thoughts to other people, they really leaned in. They wanted to talk about it in ways that really surprised me. And that's always a good sign to a writer. Yeah, you're right, Dan. I can I can vouch for that heading for the mid-40s, 50s, and then you start to reflect. And there's that moment where you go, oh, my goodness. Yesterday feels like I was 21. Exactly. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you were to wake me up in the middle of the night and say, someone who, you know, come in, wake me up in the middle of the night and say, how old are you? My first instinct would be oh, about 23, 24. <laughs> yeah. I think your um, brain so freezes there strange. or something. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a strange, it's a strange phenomenon. But then when you stop and reflect, you say, well, wait a second, I'm not 23 or 24. And I remember what it was like to be when I was 23 or 24. And I kind of wish that I knew at age 23 what I know now at, you know, what, what I know today. And, um, and then you start thinking about, you know, especially where you are for someone like me in the middle of life, I hope in the middle of life, not at the end of it, you know, the middle of life, you actually have an opportunity to both look backward and look forward. So if you're at the very, very end of your life, you, you know, it's all, it's all in the rear view. It's, it's mostly in the rear view mirror. If you're at the very beginning of your life, like my kid's age, it's all in the front windshield. And for me, it's like, you know, I can look backward, I can look forward. And, and one of the things I found in my research on regret is that looking backward can actually help you move forward with greater purpose, with greater clarity and with greater productivity. Yeah, that's, it's powerful, isn't it? Like we, we're in a very fortunate position to be able to learn from the past and reflect forward. It's, it's right. an amazing spot. And like with it, it, it seems to be something that we do avoid at times. Like I've, I've met a lot of people where that statement is don't look back, just look forward, don't look back, yeah. just look forward. Where, yeah. where does that come from, do you think, mate, this reluctance to want to look back and reflect? Yeah, it's an interesting, that's a really interesting question about where it comes from. I'm not entirely sure. I think part of it comes from the difficulty that, you know, Americans, you know, and your listeners know from my accent that I'm an American, that I think Americans and even Australians too, um, have with negative emotions. Uh, we tend to think that the way to do things is to is this unrelenting positiveness, and and that's in some ways a mistake, uh, because the the way to think about it is that we have you, you know it's like negative emotions serve a purpose, negative emotions can instruct us, and and that's one of the things that 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 got me intrigued by this topic of regret is that you know you had all these people out there saying no regrets, no regrets, no regrets, and then when I started looking at the research and there's 40 50 years of science on on regret you know what it said is that everybody has regrets we all have regrets the only people who don't have regrets are five-year-olds people with brain damage and sociopaths everybody else has regrets they, they, they make us human it's part it's part of the human condition and this this idea that we should not ever have regrets is, is foolish uh, and it really has to do with we haven't been taught how to properly deal with negative emotions. 
you know, at some level, we have to think about like, what, what are these negative feelings for? What's the purpose? And so to some, to some of us say, okay, feelings are for ignoring. Feelings are useless. I don't get anything out of feelings. I'm going to ignore them. That's a bad idea. That, that's delusional. There are other people who go almost too far the other direction and say, well, feeling is for feeling. That feelings are the only truth. And therefore, you know, they end up wallowing in their negative emotions. That's even worse. To me, the way to think about this is that feeling is for thinking. Feeling is for thinking. Our feelings, our emotions, especially negative emotions, especially negative emotions, they tell us something. They are signals. They are information. And if we reckon with them properly, don't, don't wallow in them, but also don't ignore them. If we say, whoa, it's a message coming in from my, you know, my emotions are telling me something. It's a message, it's information. What am I gonna do with this? Then there's a whole pile of evidence showing that if we reckon with them properly, we can make better decisions. We can perform better on a whole array of tasks and we can deepen our sense of meaning. And so regret, which ends up being, which is a negative emotion, it's our most prevalent negative emotion, but it's also our most powerful. There's a there's a weird there's a weird uh, quality to it in that the negativity is actually a source of positivity that we can reroute it to become a force of that's positive in our life. And I love that statement you said that you know these negative emotions or emotion is for thinking. And I guess you know a lot of the time we don't explore that we ignore the emotion. Right. And that leads to all sorts of bad outcomes. But, you know, that's a real insight that I'm guessing someone who is aware of their negative emotions and their positive and thinks about it can really learn yeah. and grow. But there's another part you mentioned that you mentioned earlier that you started to share some of these elements with people and they, they lent into it. Absolutely. It, it, it ends up being something that, to my surprise, people really want to talk about it. And let me give you, Brad, an example of this. So so as I started this exploration um, and, I, and I started this exploration of regret, with, with knowing almost nothing about the topic, just finding it really interesting and and not knowing exactly what I was going to find. But the one way that I went at it was I set up a, a site called the World Regret Survey, where we have collected regrets now from almost 17,000 people all over wow. the world. Uh, 17,000 people in 105 countries. We have these regrets from all over the world. Um, we would have even more. We only we have it in English. We have the survey in English. We have it in Spanish. We have it in Chinese. We don't have it in Japanese. We don't have it in Korean. Um, um, so so we're missing we're missing a lot of languages. But from 105 countries, 16,000 people. And, and And what I found is that these are incredibly poignant stories about what people regret. And one of the things that I discovered in looking at these 16,000, almost 17,000 now regrets is that around the world, people seem to have the same four regrets over and over and over and over and over. And in a way, the way that we've traditionally looked at regret has been concealing that. When we look at, say, when we ask questions, what do people regret? We tend to think that the answer is, well, they regret their education. They regret, they have a family regret. They have a romantic regret. They have a career regret or a health regret or a financial regret. And what I've found is that 
those surfaces are interesting, but they're far less revealing than the hidden architecture of motivation and meaning just underneath. And, and as I said, around the world, people have, to have the same four regrets over and over and over. And, what's in, and these four regrets tell us a lot about the human condition. They tell us a lot about what constitutes a good life. And that's interesting, you know, an, an amazing volume of research data that you had and then four regrets you were able to distill it down to. Do you mind, mate, for our listeners covering what those four regrets were sure, and no, what course, you discovered there? Yeah, no, it's interesting. So, so the four regrets, um, so one of them is what I call a foundation regrets. And foundation regrets, foundation regrets sound like this, if only I'd done the work. And so these are people who regret not saving enough money. So, you know, I'm 45 years old and I've been working my whole life and I'm broke because I never save money, I spend too much money. Uh, people who didn't, a lot of people regret not working hard enough in school. Uh, there are a lot of people who didn't take their uh, elementary, not elementary, but really their secondary and in, in, in their university education seriously enough and realize that they're paying a price for it right now. Um, around the world, huge numbers of people regret things like smoking. Um, and so foundation regrets are the set of regrets about establishing a stable platform for your life. If, you, if, you're, if you're insecure on these kinds of things, your life is not, your life is, is, uh, is wobbly at its, very, at its very start. So foundation regrets. Second one are what, I call, are what I call boldness regrets. Boldness regrets are people who regret not taking a chance. And what's amazing about these regrets, you, you see this, I see this in my research and we see it in the academic research. Regrets of inaction outnumber regrets of action significantly, uh, almost by about two to one. People tend to regret what they didn't do much more than what they did do. And a lot of the regrets are regrets of not taking a chance. And it doesn't matter what the domain of life is. So it could be things like not asking somebody out on a date. I mean, I have hundreds of those from around the world of people who had a crush on somebody and they didn't ask that person out. And, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later, they regret it. Um, people who regret, let's say, I mean, you have a business, you know, you, a lot of your listeners are running businesses or, or managing people. Uh, when we think about uh, in, in the realm of careers and business, people regret not taking career risks. There, there, there are a few people who regret taking a career risk. I should not have taken that job on the other side of the country. Um, uh, you, you have some people who regret, oh, I should not have started that business because I, I went bankrupt. But for every one of those kinds of regrets, I probably have 20 that are the opposite, where somebody says, oh, I never took a chance to take a job somewhere else. Uh, I never started that business. Um, uh, a lot of regrets, uh, very interesting category, uh, uh, sort of subcategory of people who regret not speaking up. I wish I had spoken up. I wish I had been more assertive. I wish I had said something because I knew, you know, I knew things and, and I was too uh, reticent about speaking up. So those are boldness regrets. Third category, moral regrets. Moral regrets are fascinating. Moral regrets are people who were at a juncture in their life. They could do the right thing or do the wrong thing and they did the wrong thing. And that wrong thing, moral regrets are interesting because they're, you know, around the world, we have some kind of consensus about what's moral, but, but some of it, we, we, we diverge. And so it's really based on your own moral code doing the wrong thing. So I have a lot of regrets about bullying kids. 
uh, people in their literally, literally in their 60s and 70s regret bullying other students when they were in primary school. Um, I have regrets about uh, cheating, a lot of regrets uh, at the personal level about infidelity. So moral regrets. And then finally, our connection regrets, which are fascinating in that um, these are these 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 come when there is a relationship that was connected, was fulfilled, was whole, or should have been whole, and yet isn't, and and they and nobody wants to reach out. So so you have a relationship, and it could be any relationship. It could be with a colleague at, at work. It could be with your son or daughter. It could be with your parent. It could be with your sibling. It could be with friends. Whatever this relationship that comes apart and when what's interesting is that the way these relationships come apart in talking to you know hundreds of people about this is that they they come apart through drift they don't come apart in dramatic ways where there's some kind of massive row and they people throw plates at each other and scream and swear it's quieter than that. It's less. It's far less dramatic than that. They they drift apart, and what happens is is that nobody wants to reach out because they think, oh, it's going to feel really weird and awkward if I reach out. And besides, the other side's not going to care. And we're wrong about that. We're so wrong about that. The evidence is overwhelming that people do care, and the overture is almost always well received. And it's far less awkward than we think. And so, so boldness, so sorry, connection regrets sound like if only I'd reached out. And so when we stack these things up, foundation regrets, boldness regrets, moral regrets, connection regrets, we actually understand what constitutes a good life. Because if we know what people regret the most, we can actually reverse that image and understand what people value the most. And so, so this, this negative emotion of regret weirdly offers us a pathway to a good and success and, and satisfying life. We know what, what matters in life. It's these four things around the world. These four things matter. We want a little bit of stability. We want a chance to do it, take our limited time to do something bold and meaningful and lead a psychologically rich life. Most of us want to do the right thing. We want to be good people and we want to have close connections to other people. That's it. And that's, that's so powerful, mate. Like I know that my, our listeners, as they hear this, we're all going to be reflecting on ourselves and people we know. You know, I know I just went through that as you went through those four things in a massive way. But the, the powerful thing with what you've come up with here is that often we look to the future and we try to predict and trying to imagine and all this. But like you've said here, just reflecting on the past that is a given, it's happened, it's causing us emotion, and looking at those four elements of, okay, is there, do I have a foundational regret, boldness, moral connection, regret, learn from it, and then move forward with certainty? Or at least with greater certainty. Greater certainty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that is that is you know the search for certainty in the future is a futile search. We're never going to have that, and there is a you know it, 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 there's a there's there's a lot of research on how people think about time and how we forecast the future and and how we forecast our own state of mind and our own 
emotion of the future. And we're terrible forecasters. Uh, and the reason we're ter- among the reasons we're terrible forecasters is we don't yet know the person we are going to be in 10 years. And so if you ask people this, and Daniel Gilbert at Harvard has done a lot of research on this, if you were to say to somebody in their mid-50s, are you a different person than you were in your 20s and 30s? People would say, of course, all right? I'm a very different person. So what about in your 70s? Are you gonna be, no, no, I don't think so. No, no, I'm just gonna be an older version of exactly who I am right now. And that's not true. Uh, and, and so when we think about the future, we're, we're terrible forecasters. And and so we have to think about the future in a way that is kind of perplexing, paradoxical, uh, contradictory, in the sense that we have some capacity to shape our future. We do, but we don't have full ability to do that. And so a lot of what we're doing is we're discovering the future too. And and so one of the things that comes out in some of the other research that I've done is this it's like sort of we lit that one of the things that regret teaches us is that this you know there's a whole been a whole debate since the beginning of philosophy is like do human beings have free will and that debate has come into psychology it's come into neuroscience you know um so you know is it fate or is it free will and when i ask people that question it's like do you have free will or does everything happen for a reason they said yes <laughs> they said i have free will and everything happens for a reason and and even though that's to me initially kind of an annoying answer what it tells us is that you know we do live at the intersection of circumstance and free will and and understanding that is i think part of what brings emotional and intellectual maturity and reckoning with that helps us bring helps us achieve a degree of satisfaction yeah that's that's interesting dan and with with that you you mentioned earlier in the episode that the key is to see the emotion or sense the emotion and learn from it dan has mentioned the importance of learning from regret and using this to help us grow into the future In volatile, challenging, uncertain times, this becomes even more important. Our organizations and we need to be agile and adaptive. The Enterprise Excellence Academy and community have brought to the Asia-Pacific region certified agile education program training and a community to help us learn best practices used by our world's most successful organizations to create cultures of reflection, learning, and rapid adaption and improvement for our customers. There are introductory courses on Agile and Lean through to advanced courses on building an entire Agile organization with Scrum at Scale. With your first course, you receive six months free access to the Enterprise Excellence Community and Resource Center. This enables you to connect each month directly with our world's experts and each other to learn, reflect, and adapt together to help us create a better future. Go to enterpriseexcellenceacademy.com to learn more, connect, and register for a course in the community. Please register quickly as there are limited numbers in each training cohort. I look forward to meeting you soon. Let's get back to the episode. Dan, do you mind unpacking that a little bit, that key element of the book, which is how looking backwards to understand our regrets yeah. moves us so forward? Let's take, let, let, so let's, let's, take a, let's, let's take a regret. Let's say that I, um, you know, I, I go into the database and I find somebody who... Um, 
who let's say that they um, they regret uh, not starting a business. Okay, let's say they're my age, they regret not starting a business. Okay, so um, so if you say so, you could say, oh, you know, uh, you have the stomach turning feeling. Oh, if only I'd started a business, I might have a little more money. I might be a little happier. Okay, and, and you feel pretty bad about that. So you can say, oh, I'm ignoring that because negative emotions don't mean anything. That's bad. You could say, oh my God, my life is terrible. I've ruined my life. It's all terrible. That's bad too. You have to say, okay, what is this telling me? What is this telling me? And there's a way, there's a process by which we can reckon with this. So the first one, it's a three-step process built on a lot of really, really good science. The first step is disclosure. Uh, we should talk about it. We should tell other people about it. That that um, there's a there's a lot of evidence that there's a lot of evidence for the uh, on the power and, and, and efficacy of of disclosure. Uh, and and we we were leery of about disclosing especially somewhat negative things about ourselves because we think that by disclosing something negative by disclosing a failure by disclosing a misstep people will like us less and what the, my reading of the research says that's completely wrong people like us more that is that is we've completely overstated how much other people will judge us and and, and look at us severely when we disclose and there's also some fascinating research a lot of this comes from james pennebaker or he pioneered it James Pennebaker at the University of Texas about even how privately disclosing, you're just writing about a regret. So, so, so what you do is the first step is you you relive the regret and therefore relieve it through through disclosure. Um, second one is this incredible body of, of research on on something called self compassion. Uh, one of the things that happens with our regrets and, and even our broader set of missteps is that we when we talk to ourselves about them. We are so much more rude and harsh and impolite and cruel to ourselves than we would ever be to somebody else. We would say, you idiot, what's wrong with you? You're terrible, you know? We say that to ourselves. We would never say that to a friend or a colleague. And so another University of Texas psychologist named Kristen Neff has pioneered something called self-compassion, which is essentially to look at our mis, to treat our missteps with the same kindness and lack of contempt that we would treat them in somebody else. Uh, and also recognize that, um, so let's go back to this regret about somebody not starting a business. Um, this person not starting a business, it's like, well, do you think you're the only person with that regret? Yeah. Uh, no, because I can show you about 400 in my database that say exactly the same thing. It's part of the human condition. And what would you tell a friend who was doing this? So that's so 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 what you you want to sort of normalize it and neutralize it through self-compassion. Then finally, is um is self-distancing. And here is the analytic component of it. Um, what we need to do is we need to zoom out on our regrets, not sort of dive into them. You know, I, I look at this as it's a difference between being an oceanographer and a scuba diver. So you don't want to just be a scuba diver of regret. You want to be an oceanographer. You want to come back and see see what it's like. And so you can say, what is this regret telling me? What lesson is this teaching me? Um, um, and and if you do these kinds of things, you can actually, you know, through you disclose it, you get you have some compassion for yourself and you self distance to draw a lesson. Then the lesson for this person starting a business might be, OK, I'm not I can't I can't go back in time and start a business when I'm 30, but what can I do? I can counsel my kids to become entrepreneurs rather than uh, work for for wages if they can. I can start a side hustle 
uh, right now and see if that's something that is, is something that is meaningful to me. I can maybe plan on retiring from my current job a little earlier and finally getting that shot at starting some kind of a, a business. So, so, so again, you don't ignore it. You don't wallow in it. You say, whoa, this bad feeling, this stomach churning feeling of regret, it's telling me something. It's a signal the, you know, what's the signal telling me and what am I going to do with that signal moving forward? Yeah, Dan, that's huge. That's huge. So the three key steps there are disclosure, you know, open up, talk to someone, show the vulnerability and have the conversation, yep. show self-compassion. Boy, yeah. that resonates. <laughs> and then self-distancing, which Dan, and I write that self-distancing is like, I, my language is a helicopter view. You get out in the helicopter, you exactly. go up above it, and then you look to learn from it and take action. Is that correct? Exactly right. And, and here's, and let me be specific here about some specific things that you can do. So in, in self-distancing. So so one of them is um, you can go forward in time and say, okay, so so what should I do? Ha, ha, what, 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 what should I do? Um, you, you say, you go forward in time, you say, okay, imagine this. It's 10 years from now, and you're looking back on this decision. What are you going to be proud of? And people will know that. You can do things like this. What imagine my best friend was in this predicament that I'm in right now. What would I tell him or her to do? All right. So you're, you distance yourself from it because we, we know that we're better solving other people's problems than our own. And so we, we are. And so so distancing that way, there's even some really fascinating research about your self-talk that I should say to myself, not what should I do, but what should you do? Or even what should Dan do? Go to the second person or the third person. Uh, you can do things like say, okay, Let's take this regret and let's make it a physical object. You have this regret, all right? It's, it's, it's a physical thing and now you're a scientist and you're a scientist examining this artifact, this, this organism in a clean, pristine room. What's your diagnosis of this regret and what's the, re what's the remedy for it? And, and, so, um, and so those kinds of things of self-distancing are really powerful in extracting a lesson from it. Let me say one more word about self-compassion because I had the same reaction to it, Brad, that, that I think that you just had, which is, it was, it was new to me when I started doing this research and I found it really compelling. And one reason it's compelling is that it triangulates between two other extremes. Self-esteem. Self-esteem isn't bad, but it's not all good either. Uh, because self-esteem unhinged to any real accomplishment leads to a kind of d delusional thinking. A lot of self-esteem is comparative. So in order to feel good about myself, I have to look down on somebody else. And so there's some downsides to, to self-esteem. Uh, the other side of that is self-criticism, which I think a lot of people, probably a lot of people, a lot of business people, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, business people, a lot of people who think of themselves as analytical and hard-headed love self-criticism. They practice it all the time. I certainly did. And then I went looking in the research for evidence of its effectiveness. There's not much, there's not much evidence that it's effective. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I, I mean, arguably it leads more toward feelings of helplessness rather than productive action. Um, and so, Self-compassion goes between those two extremes. Um, and, you know, it says, let's treat yourself not with contempt, 
but with kindness. Don't let your and, and there's a huge amount of research on self-compassion showing that treating yourself with, with self-compassion doesn't mean excusing your mistakes or letting yourself off the hook or exonerating yourself for failures. What it means is treating yourself with compassion. Um, and you know, it's kind of productive, hard-headed compassion. And, and I, I found it enormously, that, that research enormously compelling. Yeah, and I think, you know, another thing that's really highlighting for me through our whole conversation is that the power of the middle ground. You know, I had my grandparents who were dairy farmers teach me from a young age, Brad, look at both sides of the story and find your midpoint. You know, and through university, the same, but then everything we talk about today, you know, either extreme can be dangerous. You know, that whole being too self-confident and thinking you're perfect. I've seen that lead to carnage so many times. But then, like you say, being the other way where you're so self-critical that you paralyze yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And so so a lot of this is kind of finding that finding that finding the way that moves between these two extremes. It's not always directly down the middle, but it is a form of. You know, like if you think about just triangulation and navigation, it's like, okay, that's here, that's there. Oh, this is the way that I should go. Um, and it helps us navigate a, it helps us navigate a complex world. Yeah. And the, I guess it comes back to that key you said is um, learning, reflecting and learning from it. Then for an organizational leader or a business improvement specialist or people listening in that realm on our show, what would be your two-minute tip for them to use this learning to help themselves, the people they work with, and their team and the organization? Uh, so, so I'll give you I'll give you a few things. First of all, I think that these these four core regrets—foundation, boldness, moral, and connection—I uh, actually think that they, along with giving us the pathway to the good life, I think that they are the components of a strong organizational culture. Uh, that is cultures that cohere, cultures where people feel a sense of psychological safety, where people are able to, to, to do great work, are cultures where there is a foundation, where people do have a chance to act boldly, where people are doing the right thing, and where they are connected to other people. And so regret also gives us the building blocks of, I think, a coherent, powerful corporate culture. So that's at a, at a broad level. Um, at a very, very tactical level, one of my favorite tips comes from Tina Selig at Stanford University, who suggests that all business leaders should put together what she calls a failure resume. And a failure resume, is, you know, we have all these resumes you know, saying what incredible people we are and the incredible jobs we've had and the amazing things we've accomplished. A failure resume talks about all of your failures, setbacks, and screw ups, uh, but it doesn't just leave it there. It, you, you, you have a resume of all your failures, but then you say, what did this teach me? And then what am I going to do about it? And and so I, I think that that le- that leaders showing their failure resume, particularly how they can extract lessons from those failures pointing forward, is a power a powerful thing. And and everybody in organization should give that a try. Yeah, that's neat. That's neat. It's a great way to put into practice what you've put into your book, which I'm so looking forward to getting hold of. Dan, what? What's been a recent insight for you, mate? What's been a real learning that's sort of sat you back a bit? I don't, you know, um, I tend to be very slow, so I don't really have epiphanies. You know, I, I, I come to things very gradually. I, I think that, you know, um, 
I guess one of the, th- and, and this is, I think this is very cultural. Um, um, I, I think that if I were, if I had not been an American, I might not have thought, I, I might not have sort of come around to this. But, um, you know, we have this, uh, there, so much of our, our trajectory in life is the circumstances of our birth and just dumb luck. The dumb luck of the circumstances of our birth. That's it. Yeah. And so, you know, and we tend to, you know, it's, there, there are certain cultures that, that where, where people achieve and they think it's entirely due to their own talent and hard work. And, 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 and I don't mean that it, their talent and hard work doesn't play a role in that. It does. But, you know, you also had, I had a head start. I was born in the United States in the 20th century. Okay, I, I had two parents who went to university. Okay, that, I mean, that, that puts me ahead of 95% of the people who ever lived on planet Earth. Yeah. Um, you know, if I, had been, if I had been born, I just think about if I, the exact same genotype, had been the exact same physical person, had been born in the 1600s or in the 1800s or had if I had been born in Togo rather than in the United States, I, I wonder what the trajectory of my life would have been. And 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 one of the and I and, and if we reflect on that, I think it it makes us think about um, you know what are the elements of a what are the elements of a just just society, and also how much do those who have been on the you know who who won the birth lottery how much do us how much do we owe other people that's a great insight dan that's a great insight because naturally by the outcome of you being born in america me being born in australia and down the path we're on we've won the lottery what do we do with that lottery yeah exactly but i'll give you another example i mean so 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 again you 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 and i are talking by zoom and what your your audio listeners can't see is that both of us are wearing eyeglasses so i'm assuming that you are nearsighted yes. um yes. okay you're nearsighted i'm nearsighted too i'm very nearsighted i have very bad vision like i cannot i sometimes if i have my glasses off i sometimes can't find my glasses because i can't see them so okay so so we're both nearsighted if you and i had been born in the 1700s we probably wouldn't have survived <laughs> you know because we wouldn't have been able i wouldn't have been able to see anything I, like I would have been barely able to leave my house, and so so the exact same physical person born in a different century. Like I was, I'm lucky that I was born when we knew how to correct nearsightedness. Yeah, if I had been born before we knew how to do that, I would have been. I don't even know what I would have been doing. I would have been, you know, sweeping. I, I don't even know if I could sweep floors because I couldn't see the floor. I don't even know what I would be. I don't know what I would be doing. I might. I might not have survived because some, you know calamity befell me because of my bad vision yeah we we won the lottery in many regards i was only last night looking at a brochure we support the fred hollows foundation so we support a lot of different organizations charities fred hollows was an australian who won the lottery like you and i did and then he dedicated his career to going to nations where they had no eye care and ability to do eye care okay it's it's amazing you know that's a guy that won the lottery and then use the lottery to create amazing outcomes. You know, like there's just these yeah. images of these, you know, Himalayas where he started up in Tibet, 
and um you know he's got masses of people who can see for the first time it's crazy it's incredible it's amazing well, mate thank you for that insight dan that's helped me and it's so driven for what it is you know what what can we take what we've got and being won the lottery with and used to help the broader spectrum then how how can people reach out to you mate how can they reach out to your organization get the book uh if you just people can just um uh go to my website which is uh www.danpink d-a-n-p-i-n-k.com uh and there's all kinds of videos and free resources and links to various books there Mate, really appreciate it, Dan. Dan, thank you, mate, for sharing your knowledge and insight. Thank you for writing, writing such an amazing book and helping us all create a better future like you have before, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brad, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Cheers, Dan. Bye for now. What a great episode. Remember, you can go to our website, enterpriseexcellenceacademy.com to learn more and register for Certified Agile Training and the Enterprise Excellence Community. The training and community will educate you in the practices our world's leading organizations have used to create agile cultures of continuous improvement and innovation. The community will monthly link you with our world's experts and each other to help sustain and support an excellence journey. Please like, subscribe and share this podcast to help others gain insights and create a better future. There were two key takeaways for me from this episode. Firstly, see the emotion, learn from the emotion. This was such a powerful statement by Dan. So often we ignore emotions or don't even sense them consciously in the first place. The practice of seeing emotion as a learning opportunity is such a powerful approach, one that I know will help me and others ongoing. My second key takeaway was that I have won the lottery. How can I use this to help others and the planet? Dan's insight at the end of the show is so true. Many of us have won the lottery simply based on where and when we were born. The key is what we do with the lottery. There are many people throughout our history that have done amazing things with that lottery. Some of them that have inspired me are Steve Irwin and his work for Animals and the Planet that his family continues on, Fred Hollows and his work with the Sight Impaired, and all our past guests on the show who share their knowledge and help so freely. Thanks again, Dan, for sharing your knowledge and helping us create a better future. Bye for now.